Welcome back, folks, to episode 48 of the Running Man Self-Regulation Skills and Self-Improvement Project podcast with me, your host, Dr. Armando Dominguez, Ph.D. in Health Psychology, Licensed Professional Counselor, and an Adjunct Professor at Local Community College. Now, what we're going to be discussing today is going to be when we overvalue the higher cortex when we're under stress. And I have covered this a little bit in the past. Now, the reason I'm trying to bring this up today has to do with some practical reasons having to do with how I see myself, how I believe things to be, and also the difference that otherwise could occur uh, whenever we're not compromised by that stress that uh, I'm kind of mentioning as well. So to start off with, what I'd like to uh, put out there is that uh, whenever we are under stress, we have differences in how our body physiologically responds. Of course, the most basic will be uh, to our attentiveness in our immediate environment if we're noticing motion. If um, we're around others, if it's a social paradigm, uh, the way people physically behave, our body language is the first thing that we note. Even though we may not consciously pick it up subconsciously, we are cueing to those things that would be considered, in quotes, body language. And um, I'm going to really uh, hammer home the fact that often those subtleties will create changes in the way we're interacting in our environment that could create discomfort or stress often before we ever really find out what may or may not be particularly wrong um, in our situation. But uh, whenever we have uh, an environment where we're sharing that with other people, body language first, and also the sound of things, if things are too loud, the way things are being spoken, if someone is delivering a message, a verbal message, that uh, often uh, might be disconcerting, may have to do with whether or not those tonals kind of match What's going on with the body language, for instance? And whenever these two things don't match, then often uh, the outcome or the very last part of that message, the last 7% of that message uh, that is fighting with the 93% of the delivery system, the body language and the tonals, um, tends to make it really hard to believe or appreciate, especially even if the information is correct or accurate, if those other two elements aren't in order, it makes it really hard to gather the important part or the message itself or the code. Now, whenever that happens, there are some other physiological things that go on. Uh, often if we stress or it's uncomfortable, heart rate changes. Often our heart rate will quicken because there is a perceived sense of dis-ease in the environment. Now, disease as in the body, but dis-ease or lack of ease uh, in our environment. So therefore our heart rate goes up, which is a little above beyond what we would call our normal level of day-to-day -day anxiety that uh, prepares us for um, evasion and aversion from uh, things that aren't good for us. But also whenever we have that, uh, we have a change in our breathing. So our oxygen to carbon dioxide output changes a bit. And if we're not taking in enough oxygen, for instance, we may be putting off more CO2 and we may be actually physiologically increasing our anxiety that often 
uh, is coupled with that increased heart rate. And sometimes we may note that our muscles are no longer at ease if I was nice and comfy before in that they want to fire as a result of the state I'm experiencing. I might get a little twitchy, a little jumpy, maybe not immediately, maybe not obviously, but definitely because of the increase in blood flow or our areas under our arms, our atrial creases no longer want to be next to our body. Uh, and then our uh, creases behind our knees, our popliteal crease and our inguinal creases are needing uh, to feel a sense of comfort. So we may start moving our legs and our arms about a little bit just to make up a little more space so the blood flow can flow more easily. Often we don't pay attention to these things. Now, notice I'm paying attention to the physiological stuff going on in the body. So what's going on in the brain? Since we're discussing self-regulation as part of this uh, uh, podcast, uh, this are, these are rather some of the symptoms we must be aware of, very self-aware of, to determine whether or not I need to incite my psychological self-regulation or even for that matter, my environmental self-regulation. Should myself be here in this environment? Is the environment good for me? And can I get away from it with ease? Or do I at least have a point of egress if by social contract, by Cat 22, I must be there if I have children or this is my job, this sort of thing. So the psychological sense of Ease uh, often has to do with the foundation of our immediate physiological intake of these bits of information having to do with how people are acting, the sound, and also what's being said. And uh, general milieu, so to speak, how the group is interacting if I'm in a larger space versus alone in the environment, uh, out in the woods, this sort of thing. But not so different, the same tools we use. Now, as far as getting to the psychological aspect, this is where we may tend to overvalue the higher cortex whenever we are under stress. Getting back to the initial uh, idea of what this podcast is about. So what do I mean by overvaluing our higher cortex? Well, our prefrontal cortex, that little space behind our forehead, wherever we kind of face palm ourselves a little bit, whenever I wish I could have that back. Oh, why didn't I think of that after something is done and then the idea comes to you? Uh, th this is the area that uh, is where our highest level of reasoning and our crystallized IQ tends to occur. Our memories, our recall, our knowledge remembered that we have memorized, so to speak, and that we carry around as our resident fund of knowledge, regardless of what age you are. And whenever our prefrontal cortex is at its most comfy and fullest in the sense that it has blood flow running through it, carrying blood sugar to fuel what we call our thinking process, that is whenever we are at our fullest endowment that we have access to. But uh, it does not necessarily in this idea, account for any stress in particular, but just whenever it's running at optimum. So whenever we're at optimal, then we have the largest uh, access to whatever it is our fund of knowledge and our IQ is. But whenever stress hits, that changes. Uh, depending on how stressful an event is outside of our body, we'll feel safe, unsafe, or otherwise. If there's a shift or a shock or a surprise, even a loud noise or even a pain, something happens that I wound up hitting my toe and I break my little pinky toe. I've done that several times and um, laughed after the fact, but at the point that I had it happen, boy, that didn't uh, do any uh, 
just as to my bestest of all thinking because it went towards the pain and I did not problem solve very well for a little bit. But blood flow gets taken to the area of priority and if there's motion or pain, the body's going to naturally guard those things and attend to those things. And it may not be whatever presentation you may be doing, may not be with the highest reasoning of mathematical process that you may be doing. Uh, and it may not be with picking the best option whenever it becomes critical. But if pain is in uh, the body, that becomes a priority. So therefore, the blood flow often will get shunted into the skeletal muscles. It moves to the body, we get stronger. Uh, but we also, by default, become a little dumber for a short period of time. doesn't mean that you don't have that. It just means that the fuel required to do those processes um, is no longer available for a time anyway, till the problem gets solved. So why do we overvalue the higher cortex? Part of it is our recollection of how well we process when we are under less stress. And our assumption, and this is where we often will make a mistake, is that we're capable of reasoning at that highest capacity when we're under stress like we are able to do when we're not under stress of pain or fear or worry, this sort of thing. And that's not necessarily the case. So why use this example today? One of these is that this is something that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And often we are so entangled in what it is that we call our lives, doing our lives, doing our job, that uh, sometimes when things get easy, we get into autopilot. And we may not even be working at optimum, but at the most efficient, then we don't have to access all of our IQ to do what we know that we're very familiar with. Whenever things are low stakes, lower stress in the sense that you're not going to get physically hurt. At the same time, we may remember what it's like to be able to reason with all of our capacity and it may even seem exciting if somebody asks us, hey, can you uh, help me with this? Can I pick your brain for a moment? And then we start engaging all the cognitive engines, so to speak, and start thinking more deeply about things. And that can be a fun exercise. But we also have the other end of the spectrum whenever we're under stress. And if somebody asks us to do something or our environment uh, requires us to do something that requires deeper thinking, problem solving that maybe I'm not prepared for, then this is where we might see things like frustration, anger, irritability, and anxiety, because I don't have those answers. And I may not be able to think or reason or imagine what it is I need to do to be able to provide even the direction towards an answer sometimes, uh, depending on how stressful the environment is. So, those are some ideas to consider whenever we're looking at what our best reasoning, our higher cortical process is, because often we will value what we can do at a level beyond what we're capable of doing, even if the state is only temporary, because of the level of expectation that we have as a result of what we're used to putting out as far as process and what our outcomes are whenever we're usually using our bestest of all capacities mentally. And so whenever we look at as an example, uh, what that would look like in someone else, just as an example, once again, if we consider what the Navy SEALs do whenever they do their swim test, there's a lot of great videos out there about their testing and their swimming and how far they go and the pushing of the human limits to where they may or may not have a one or two hours of sleep within a, a 10 to 12 day period. 
And whenever we get pushed to our physical limits, that they are still being asked to do things that are beyond general uh, human capacity. And a lot of that has to do with commitment. There still has to be a decision made. There still has to be the capability to decide or choose to do this, even when the body says stop, even when the body says quit. And there are many uh, good books out there that talk about, well, how do you come to that point wherever you decide to go through things, even when you think that you can't? Part of the reason is that we put our attention on the things and the outcome and the goal and try not to focus on the immediate sense of discomfort or the pain and sometimes deciding just to keep going through the painful and the uncomfortable and the discomfort of whatever it is that we may have to go through that seems insurmountable and beyond my ability to reason. If you've read anything about long distance runners, people that do not just marathons, but ultra marathons, uh, these people also have this sense of depletion, physical depletion and struggle with the mind and what it does. And also they discuss getting into altered states of sorts to be able to keep going and then looking back and realizing what they went through and still having a recollection of the pain and the discomfort, but not letting it stop them. Now, there was a, a study done a while back, and uh, many people uh, balked at the idea. I forget the name of the book, but that was an amazing study that was done that pared down what we call free will, our ability to choose to two simple elements. One is our ability to choose, and the other part had to do with blood sugar. And this became ultra fascinating to me, and here's the reason why. That whenever we do go through a marathon of sorts, whenever we go through something that is beyond our normal human endurance, we come down to two things. One, choosing to do or not to do. But if we look at the fundamental of, well, what is it that's required to even make that decision? What part of this is physiological beyond just the subjective, the cognitive, or the thinking process? And that has to do with what keeps us alive. Moment to moment, what keeps us alive? The oxygen that we have resident in our blood flow and the blood sugar within the blood that's being carried to do the process of the thinking or the choosing at its most simple one and two black, white binary, wherever we're deciding yes or no, that is what is required. So free will Whenever we decide to choose, we do have the capacity to choose. And wherever we have this entity of sorts that is our our own sense of self and our idea, and that part of us that is our true self, looking at ourselves, observing our own ability to choose, and seeing our own thoughts in the process of thinking, and having our opinions, that part of us that watches us sees, at the very least, the choice, the most basic component, the yes-no and experiences the feel of still having enough blood sugar and oxygen to be able to carry out those decisions. So in essence, this author said that we do not have free will in the truest sense, because at some point environmental will overtake our capacity to even make those choices. And mind you, this is internal environmental that is impacted by the external environmental that we're interpreting to be the necessary the required and the desired goal or outcome that we're seeking to pursue. So this is a really profound thing. So 
when we overvalue the higher cortex, that's our assumption, our consciousness saying, hey, it's going to keep going. It's like that sense of ego that we so quickly defend that we know isn't real, but yet we defend it like it's real. And often people will overvalue the subjective, what somebody has said about me, oh, your mother wears army boots or whatever insult. And we take offense to that. Whenever mom never wore boots, and well, they don't know my mom, but yet I still choose to take offense because nobody talks about my mom. There's this idea, this assumed sense of importance there. There's also this assumed sense of honor that doesn't exist either in the truest sense. And now it is an important thing. It's great to be honorable, and I have no problems with that. And I try to live my way in an ethical, moral, honorable way. But even that is a conception that without our capacity to be subjective or our brain to think what we call that subjective idea of honor for that matter, or even that subjective idea of what I call myself does not exist. To be able to think myself into being, to have that assumption or thought or experience of ego and be able to speak to anyone or deliver it as a message, even internally to myself, I have to have oxygen. I have to have blood sugar within my blood. I have to have my heart pumping and my lungs working and my ability to circulate those throughout my body. So those two things are exceedingly profound in my mind. So why do we overvalue the higher cortex often in the process of thinking what it is that we're thinking and whatever it is that we may be doing? We get carried away with that sense, that assumed belief that it just somehow continues. And that starts getting into the areas of what we might even call spiritual for that matter. And there are those that might even be getting really close to it and kissing that edge. And going back to the Navy SEALs, whenever they do their swim test, one breath, Olympic-sized pool, one into the other, however many laps that they can muster, to the point wherever literally they pass out underwater and they have divers taking them to the edge and catch them so they don't drown. But yet their decision is so resolute that they don't quit even down to the point where they run out of oxygen and where their blood sugar is depleted. And yet they continue until that point. And these are the things that sometimes we have to look into when we consider what our sense of will is, in quotes, not free will per se, but our will and our determination to choose. And it does come down to free will, I guess, if we really look at it. And what we consider valuable that may be even uh, we consider valuable to the point or even beyond what we would consider the value, the absolute value of myself, because I'm trying to serve in a bigger capacity or maybe seeing things in a bigger way beyond even what I would consider uh, important in my own life or beyond the value of my own life. And this is where we tie into an idea and uh, we can get into the idea of the larger sense, egregore, wherever we have this prevailing, overarching sense of thought and belief, like society, for instance, or serving the higher good of a family or those that may be our team, if we're working in the military, and I am former military and understand that a bit, uh, and knowing that we have a goal that will serve the higher order. And that's whenever we start working towards something that's bigger than ourself. And isn't this what... Uh, we are hearing every day in our media outlets that has to do with the good positive and the self-developmental that sometimes we have to find something bigger than our own individual self. And it's whenever we get overly focused in ourself and what's happening to this self 
that often we run into ideas like depression, anxiety, and overwhelm. And without necessarily leaving ourselves behind, sometimes focusing on helping others, focusing on outside of ourselves and just doing the task often will take our mind off a rumination over self and how we lack or what we don't have. And we pursue and move forward in the directions, not only positive, but generative and beneficial to ourself. And we tend to stay away from over judging or judging too harshly, whatever it is that we are, or how we are. And we pay attention to the outcome that becomes a greater sense of purpose over time. So with that, uh, we'll close for this podcast. And I want to tell you, thank you for passing time with me this evening, this Friday evening. And this is the last Friday of 2023. And um, I'm hoping that this podcast lands in your ears and in your hearts and that you will share, like, and subscribe. And just as an adjunct to what I'm telling you today, uh, we are now uh, on YouTube as well. So please follow and share if you can and share it with as many folks as you can if you think this is a beneficial message. And we're moving towards that new year and new goals and new accomplishments. And hopefully we'll be talking on the other side of this uh, new year as well. And uh, take care. Thank you once again. Walk well.